0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia Please visit our website at bsv.net.au Okay everyone so let's start off this retreat very gently and as usual just begin by sort of easing into the meditation by giving yourself lots of time before you go to the meditation object People often make the mistake of going to the meditation object too soon It's important to give rise to a steady mindfulness before you start watching the breath or whatever So start off by just making sure you are really comfortable, you are at ease Don't have any unnecessary pains or tightnesses or anything in the body And allow the mind to relax The way to allow the mind to relax is just to be very patient Allow things to calm down, uh, allow the world to fade into the background, gradually, gradually. uh. And uh, as you go along, make sure that you don't uh, do the meditation, but that you allow the meditation to happen. Uh. And to be able to do this, don't judge what is happening uh. Nothing is really right or wrong uh. The moment you say something is wrong uh, you start to manipulate, you start to change things. Uh. So instead, allow things to be, uh, and just gradually allow things to come all by themselves. Uh. There's nothing to be done uh, except standing back uh, and being with whatever happens. And uh, if you can, just notice the uh, pleasure of the present moment, uh, the idea of resting in the here and now, uh, without all this movement to the future and the past. uh, There's something very restful about the present. uh, It's like a holiday, a real holiday for the mind. uh, And as you notice that, you will incline more towards that present. And if you do find yourself thinking about the future or the past, uh, remember that that world outside, uh, the world of the future and the past, uh, there is nothing of interest there, There is more of the same, more problems, endless running around and around, uh, without getting anywhere at all. uh, It is here on the spiritual path uh, that you really produce the future, uh, not by thinking about it. uh. So come back to the present, uh, Everything else is irrelevant. Okay, coming close to the end, and before we come to the end, just take a minute or two, uh, just to review your meditation. Uh, Ask yourself if you feel any better now than when you started. Uh, And if you feel more at ease, more relaxed, more mindful, uh, then ask yourself why that is the case. Uh, Okay, so uh, let us uh, talk a little bit about Dhamma, as to start out. <laughs> um, the uh, idea with this retreat, as with most of the retreats I do, is to focus on the suttas, the word of the Buddha. Because uh, I think the word of the Buddha is um, uh, the most important uh, teachings that we find in Buddhism. Uh, because it is the foundation of everything else. Uh, as always, I want to focus on the word of the Buddha, and uh, I'm going to focus on this year. It's going to be on the gradual training, and the gradual training is set out very nicely in the uh, Chula Hatti Padopama Sutta, the shortest sutta on the elephant's footprint. Uh, and many of you will know this sutta. Yeah, it is found in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, number 27, and it's very famous for people with a Sri Lankan background. Yeah, quite a few of you have Sri Lankan background here. Huh? Because it is the sutta that Mahinda taught in Sri Lanka, taught to the king. What was the name of that king? Duttagamani or something? Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. Devanampriya was it? Okay. okay, there you go. So I, this is my knowledge of Sri Lankan history, it's pretty, pretty dodgy. So <laughs> so Tissa, okay, the Tissa who is dear to the devas. Um, and he taught that to the king and to, of course, all the you know the entourage of the king, the queens and all of that. And uh, they, some of them became stream entries when they heard that talk. And that was kind of the official beginning of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. That's a nice story. And that was this sutta here. Yeah, This is why people became stream entries. Uh, so at the end of this course, uh, you should all expect stream entry. <laughs> Let's see what happens. <laughs> It's, no, that's the, that's the story. I don't know if that's really a, a kind of a very reliable story that everyone becomes stream mentors. Whenever the sutta say 80,000 people become stream mentors, uh, I must admit I have my doubt, to be honest. Uh, I think sometimes these things are a bit exaggerated. But nevertheless, it's a very powerful and beautiful sutta. And I last talked about the gradual training here at the BSV. That was probably down in Anglesey, where we normally have the retreat years ago, five years ago, and so I thought it was time to come back to one of these very basic teachings of Buddhism, uh, which sets out the path in a very beautiful way, from the very beginning, uh, from you start off hearing the word of the Buddha, and then it takes you all the way to the end of the path, uh, all the way to arahantship, uh, and so it's a very and it gives you all the steps in between so you kind of get a complete understanding of the Buddhist path uh. basically it is a detailed exposition of the Noble Eightfold Path. That's really what it is, the uh, gradual training. So that's going to be what we're going to talk about during these eight days. And uh, as I said, I really love to focus on the suttas. And the reason is uh, because, first of all, I'm a Buddhist monk and I Wear these funny clothes, and I kind of, you know, have a kind of short hairdo, and all these kind of things, and uh, so I, and the reason I can survive as a Buddhist monk, yeah, is because of the Buddha. The Buddha established this thing two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, he made it possible for us to collect alms. If you go out into, even if you probably go out to the suburbs of Melbourne, there probably people give you things, right? Why? Well, because you not just because you're wearing funny clothes, but because there is a meaning to this way of dressing, and this way of behaving, and this way of being, uh, and that was comes from the Buddha. And so I believe you have a debt of gratitude to the Buddha. And the way to repay that debt, in large part, is to express the Dhamma in the way that he expressed it. Uh, yeah, To teach the Dhamma according to the word of the Buddha. And if you don't do that, then I think that you are, in a sense, almost like cheating a little bit. Uh, because we, uh, that is kind of your obligation as a monastic, to ensure uh, that you bring this Dhamma into the future, to future generations. So. And That is one part. But another part of it is simply that uh, the Dhamma is very, when you listen to people, it is often very expressed in idiosyncratic ways. Uh, one teacher says A, another teacher says minus A. Wow, uh, the exact opposite. <laughs> so who is right? Is A right or is minus A right? And sometimes you just don't know who is right. and maybe they're both right, depending on how you view these things. It's very hard to say here. Yeah. So sometimes to be able to ensure that you get the real teachings, uh, yeah, you have to go back to the gold standard of what Buddhism is about, uh, and that is the suttas. Uh, this is Buddhism. Uh, we can be uh, not, if, if this isn't Buddhism, nothing is Buddhism, right? Uh, this, is the, can the, this is the foundation of, upon which everything else is built. Uh, without these suttas, uh, without the Buddha, without thinking, believing that the Buddha was enlightened, uh, everything really collapses. Uh. Yeah, there is. Everything else is built on that idea that the Buddha was enlightened or awakened. If the Buddha wasn't awakened, basically Buddhism doesn't really work anymore. So we have to assume that the Buddha knew what he was talking about. Uh, and that is what gives this sutta such power. So um, even when we talk about meditation, yeah, we think about how we're supposed to meditate. Then really, we should focus on the word of the Buddha. The Buddha teaches us meditation. Learning meditation from the Buddha—that's the title for tonight's short little talk because we haven't got that much time, unfortunately. So, learning meditation from the Buddha. Yeah, not from uh, some dodgy monk like uh, Ajahn Brahmali or something like that, but <laughs> from the real, from the real master two and a half thousand years ago. Huh? So that's. Uh, the idea behind focusing on the Then Sometimes it's very interesting, sometimes you hear people say, oh, the suttas are so hard to read, I don't understand a word that was in the suttas, it's just impossible to decipher these complex things. but it depends a lot on what kind of translation you are reading. Yeah, One of the problems I understand, sometimes you, you see the translations that are done into Thai, for example, or done into Sinhala. Sometimes the translations are so, because they want to honor the Buddha, the translations are done to such a kind of formal standard, that no one understands what's in there. Yeah, <laughs> If you read some of the early teachings, early translations into English, they too are really kind of stilted and very sort of, it doesn't kind of, it, it, you, you don't really kind of relate to the teachings very well. It's not as if the Buddha is sitting in front of you talking to you, it's as if it's filtered through some kind of layer of artificial language, which doesn't make, make it natural. So one of the important things is to make the suttas come alive. Yeah, The idea when you hear the suttas should be as if the Buddha is sitting in front of you. You read a sutta, you feel, oh, the Buddha is teaching me. You start shaking because, because the Buddha teaching you is like, oh, I'm not sure if I can dare to be in the presence of the Buddha because the Buddha is so powerful. Imagine being with the Buddha. Yeah? Imagine that feeling. It would be kind of would you be scared if the Buddha was here? How would you feel about it? it? would be a bit scary, right? Because the Buddha is like, wow, he's the beginner. He's the one who started all of this. He's the most powerful person, the most powerful being in all of Buddhist history. here, The most powerful spiritual genius in human in, in known human history. here. Because there's someone extraordinary, powerful with the Buddha. So being in the presence of the Buddha, probably you are scared until... You get to know the Buddha, then you relax. Because the Buddha is just compassion and kindness. Yeah? So there's nothing to be scared of. Still, we are, sometimes we are scared of the things we should not be scared of. And we are not scared of the things we should be scared of. (laughs) That's kind of human, uh, humanity for you. So uh, these, to me, that people think they are difficult. Actually, uh, the suttas, uh, to my mind, are much more coherent, uh, much more uh, easy to understand. uh, than almost any contemporary teacher, my own teacher Ajahn Brahm included. (laughs) And uh, that doesn't mean I don't listen to Ajahn Brahm. Of course I listen to Ajahn Brahm. Of course we listen to contemporary teachers. Uh, It just means that this is the foundation for everything here. And what you find is that the way that contemporary teachers teach, often it's quite beautiful. Yeah, they can be poetic, it can be nice, it can read very well. But if you try to think what the actual meaning is, it can be hard to grasp exactly what they are saying. It doesn't have the precision, doesn't have the consistency, the coherence that the word of the Buddha has. So to me, these are the most well-expounded teachings on Buddhism ever made in Buddhist history, and that there ever will be. Yeah. The Buddha himself said that his teachings were svakato. Yeah, remember we did the chanting before: svakato, bhagavata Dhammo, Yeah, svakato means suakato. Suakato means well-expounded. Yeah, the Buddha thought about this. He put a lot of effort into expounding these teachings in the right way. Yeah? Yeah, and this is uh, what he says throughout the suttas, the Buddha went on retreat. What did, he on, what did he do on those retreats? Well, I think maybe one of the things that he did was to uh, reflect, how should I best expound these teachings? Uh, that's why we have dependent origination, that's why we have all of these beautiful things. Uh, so that is uh, uh, why I like to focus on the suttas in brief. Uh, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about meditation practice today. And uh, meditation practice, too, should, in my opinion, emerge from the word of the Buddha. How did the Buddha teach meditation? And uh, because, again, I th- what you find when you do that is that the way the Buddha said things actually differs slightly from how many contemporary teachers uh, teach meditation. So it's very useful to come back to that foundation to really get a feeling for what the Buddha said and maybe get some idea where sometimes contemporary teachers don't get it quite right. Yeah. It's very, I think some, this can be a very, very uh, useful exercise. And one of the things uh, that the Buddha says, he talks about, well, what is it that gives rise to mindfulness? Yeah, so One of the, of course, important things with med- meditation is that there is no meditation without mindfulness. If you're not mindful, you can't really be aware of anything, you can't focus on anything, you can't stay with anything. So mindfulness is a completely essential quality of mind to bring into the meditation. So how does mindfulness come about? This becomes like a very important question. And um, a very common way of uh, saying how mindfulness comes about in Buddhist circles, you go to meditation retreat or whatever, is that the idea that mindfulness gives rise to more mindfulness. Mindfulness begets mindfulness. Mindfulness is a bit like a muscle. yeah. If you train mindfulness, then you get more mindfulness down the track. Yeah? But is that right? It is kind of the assumption very often, yeah. You and and very often you will see this is based on teachings in the suttas, like the Satipatthana, yeah, mindfulness and clear comprehension. And this is explained in the suttas when going forward, you have clear comprehension. When going backwards, you have clear comprehension. When looking. A side, when we're looking this way, you have clear comprehension. When talking, you have clear comprehension. When you're being silent, you have clear comprehension. All of these things that we do in daily life, you have mindfulness and clear comprehension. And this becomes very often the foundation for saying that, well, we have to be mindful at all times. And the idea then is that if you are mindful in all activities, well, then you will be more mindful down the track when you sit down in meditation. Is that true? Maybe. But actually, this is not really how the Buddha teaches meditation practice. Yeah, This is not how he teaches, this is not the causes of mindfulness according to the suttas. Sometimes being mindful can help because if you are mindful throughout the day, it means that you don't allow maybe too many defilements to arise. But sometimes trying too hard to be mindful can also be counterproductive. I must be mindful. Oh, Mindful, mindful. <laughs> and you try really, really hard and come the end of the day you're so exhausted by trying to be mindful because you exert so much willpower in being mindful that it becomes counterproductive. Because when you are exhausted and tired because of all the effort you put forth, it tires the mind. Yeah, And then you come to meditation and you go like this. <sighs> That, that kind of meditation, yeah, it is not so. It's not the best. It's okay. You can do that kind of meditation if you want, but it's better to be awake when you meditate. And this is the the problem. Yeah, sometimes trying too hard to do anything is often counterproductive. Huh? So the idea here. If we understand the idea of sampajanya correctly, and this is actually a very interesting area, super-duper interesting, and I'll come to this later on during this meditation retreat. I have one of the suttas I have in this one is the Satipatthana Sutta. I don't know if you have had a look at this yet, but it's at the back here somewhere. We'll see how much we can have a look. It's actually quite involved, but we will have hopefully a little bit of look at that. And one of the reasons why we have this idea that being mindful in daily life is practice of mindfulness is because Satisampajanya is inside the Satipatthana Sutta, so it becomes a kind of practice. But actually, if you look at the suttas overall, Satisampajanya really belongs on a more preliminary stage of the Buddhist path. And this is why one of the reasons why the, the Sutta we're going to look at now is so interesting here. because according to the Sutta, you know the gradual training right? you you have all the virtues yeah, the, 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 mor- the morality, the sila aspect of Buddhism. then comes the contentment this is in the Sutta, Beautiful passion and contentment. Then you have a sense restraint. Indriya, Sangvara, Sila. Yeah. Then you have Satya sampajanya. Yeah. Full mindfulness and full awareness. Then you have the abandoning of the hindrances. That's where Satipatthana comes in. Then you have The jhana states, this is samadhi states, one thing is very clearly laid out. And if you look at that way it is laid out, satisampajanya actually belongs to a more preliminary stage of the Buddhist path. It doesn't really belong to satipatthana practice, but it is very close to the idea of sense restraint. And this is very important. So the idea here is that we do satisampajanya not just to be aware, but we do it with a very specific purpose. The purpose of Satisabajanya is to not have get too many defilements in the mind, yeah? To have an even mind whereby you reduce your aversions, your ill will, your desires and all of that is very closely related to the idea of sense restraint. So sati, when we are mindful in daily life, it's always good to be mindful. Don't throw out the mindfulness, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it has to be a very clear purpose to that mindfulness. And the purpose of the mindfulness in daily life should always be to reduce the defilements of the mind. Have more metta, have more compassion. More renunciation. Yeah, even in lay life, you can renounce a little bit. Yeah, renounce excessive desires, like desires going, like the desire to go to the casino, for example. You can renounce that one. Yeah, that's a good start. Uh, got to start somewhere. But some basic things like that you can give up. And uh, then that is when you use mindfulness in daily life in the right way. It is not just mindfulness on its own right, uh, but mindfulness. Knowing your mind, knowing your conduct, so you can adjust your conduct. And then if your conduct is perfect, that is when mindfulness starts to arise. And this is what the Buddha says again and again. It is not mindfulness that begets mindfulness. It is morality, sila, and right to view. These are the things that lead to mindfulness. Yeah, Noble Eightfold Path right view at the very beginning, then you have all the silas, then you have right effort, right effort is also about kind of avoiding the bad qualities of mind, then comes satipatthana, then comes sammasati, right mindfulness. It is all based on these two qualities, right view and morality. This is what gives rise to mindfulness. So because that is what gives rise to mindfulness and because one aspect of morality is the morality of the mind, it becomes very important to be aware of what's happening in the mind yeah, and then avoid the bad qualities from arising. Stop them from arising and keep the mind even and balanced instead. Then you will have mindfulness. Then when you come here and sit down to meditate, you will have success in your meditation. So the... Purpose of mindfulness is very important. uh, Yeah, purpose has to be keep an even mind state, uh, a mind which doesn't get dragged around uh, by all the beautiful sights and sounds and smells and whatever else in the world, uh, but has a sense of evenness and balance uh, amid all these phenomena. Then you're on the right track. This is so important. uh, Yeah, I think people, I'm always... Very fascinated, because it takes a long time to often understand these very simple things. It took me about 15 years as a monk before I thought, wait a minute, I've got to be kind. <laughs> I've got to live well. Yeah, I said, Whoa, that's, gee, And uh, because sometimes you have to see it. And this is one of the reasons why I love it, to read the sutras from the very beginning, because it kind of gave me that information which s- some other people don't give you. Yeah, listen to Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm says, Yeah, close your eyes, don't do anything, relax, yeah, just sit back, don't do anything. Nimitta arises, bang, you go into jhana. So I tried that, nothing happened. (laughs) Why why is nothing happening? And then I had to, because Ajahn Brahm, very kind of pure heart, yeah, and a war, I think meditation is so, so wonderful. And of course, he's a very good salesman of this, so you try to do what he says. But then you start to read the suttas I think, okay, I need to start more basic level. Yeah, more kind of <laughs> come back, get back to reality. Be honest about where you are at in the meditation. And then you start to implement all of these things. Uh, yeah, and then you start to feel it all coming together. Uh. And this is what I mean by the power of the word of the Buddha. The Buddha adds things uh, that other teachers may not add. Yeah, and then they make it possible for you to make that progress on the path. Uh. So this is what we should focus on, that beautiful sila and the right view. So what does sila do to you? What sila does, it makes you feel good about yourself. It makes you feel at ease. You can live with yourself easily. You don't have much remorse or regret for the things that you have done. You know that you are a good person. You know that you're living well. So sila is not just about avoiding the bad things, as I like to say, but doing the good things being kind to the maximum of your ability, saying kind words, thinking kind thoughts, all of these kind of things. And as you do that, as you maximize that, as you understand the urgency of doing that, it's incredibly urgent, because this is what helps the whole path. Yeah, makes the path work. Without that, it's not gonna work. And then you become, because you feel the urgency, the mindfulness starts to rise in regard to those things. And as the mindfulness arises in regard to those things, you cannot stop yourself anymore from being kind. Because you remember, moment after moment, you have to do the right thing. And if the defilements get the better of you, Okay, so you say okay. No interaction. Let me just go, let me go somewhere and just chillax for a while, and let kind of the uh, you know the smoke come out of my ears or whatever it is, uh, until I kind of really relax again, and then you come back and you you deal with people when you are ready for it. You know how to uh, interact with people in a good way. Huh? So incredibly important. And this is important also when it comes to meditation practice, when you sit down. So when you sit down you always start off by asking yourself what is my state of mind right now? Do I have sufficient mindfulness? Are there any big defilements right now? Am I upset with anyone? Do I have a bit of ill will? Do I have some kind of strong desire that is kind of making life difficult for me? And especially the ill will you don't. If you have some kind of ill will, your mind is not really balanced or whatever. Don't sit down and meditate. Yeah, do something else first of all. Do a bit of walking. Go and have a cup of tea. Read a sutta, Reflect on what's going on. Overcome that defilement so it actually is very much reduced before you sit down to meditate, because meditation is based on that sila. Yeah? Not only long-term, but also short-term. So don't try to push meditation when there are powerful defilements in the mind, because you're just going to knock your head against the proverbial brick wall. Yeah, And that's painful. Yeah, Don't knock your head against brick walls. That's what the Buddha said. So <laughs> or something like that, anyway. Yeah. So uh, yes, yeah, so but't so know your mind state, know when you're ready to meditate. know when you should be doing something else, so you don't waste any time on the cushion uh, and you don't get anywhere huh? So this is what it means. Yeah? Sila is the foundation of a mindfulness. Huh? When you feel good about yourself, because you know that you live well, then when you close your eyes, there's a natural positive energy with you. Huh? That's when you can do the sila nusati, the recollection of your. Uh, morality, you don't have to do very much because you know it already, it just happens automatically pretty much. And then of course your meditation is going to take off as a consequence. And then there is the aspect of right view, Yeah, right view supporting meditation. And this is I think one of the things that is very often underestimated in Buddhism, Buddhist meditation circles. Because right view, what, what does it really mean? If you're going to think about right view in a kind of broad context, with a broad idea, what does it mean to have right view? And what it means, in a kind of the most basic way here, is that you understand where to find happiness and where there is suffering here. That's really what right view is about. Yeah, The Buddha says, if you do these things, they will lead to suffering. If you do these things, it will lead to happiness. You understand the distinction between happiness and suffering. That's really what right view is about. So in meditation practice, where is that suffering? Well, that suffering is in the external world. Yeah, If you are interested in the external world, your mind will think about the future. It will think about the problems in your life that you have to resolve. It will think about your work. It will think about your family Issues, whatever they might be. It will think about all of those things that need to be sorted out. Yeah? Because the world is really... Uh, because you think that there's happiness to be found in that world. As long as you can just sort it out, Yeah, then everything will be okay. Yeah? And then the world will kind of come together. Yeah? But uh, the problem is that the world is not like that. Yeah? The world outside, the world of the five senses is always problematic. That's why we have wars in Ukraine. Because the five-sense world is problematic. Do you think that the world in Ukraine is a mistake? Is it a mistake or is it right? Hmm, interesting question, right? It is a mistake in one way, but in another way it's right. It is right in the sense that this is what we can expect from that world of the five senses. This is what that world does. It creates wars. Why? Because human beings are always going to be in conflict. We're going to be in conflict because we fight over resources, but also because we fight over a sense of identity and all of these kind of things. That world is always going to be problematic, always going to give climate change, always going to be we give you COVID, yeah? going to be one of the COVID around the corner, always going to give you these kind of things. And if we try to resolve the problems in that world, as soon as we have resolved one problem, another problem arises. As soon as you have fixed up one relationship problem, another one, bang, comes, comes up. Yeah? As soon as you have kind of fixed one problem at work, another one comes to haunt you. You're never going to resolve the things in that world. There's just one thing after another going on forever. So the way to create happiness in your life is not to pursue it in that world, because that world is inherently problematic. The place to find happiness is actually inside. By calming things down, by enjoying the inner peace, by giving up that world, that is where you find happiness. And you know that to some extent already, right? You know that when you start to feel peaceful inside, there's something about the peace of meditation that is very beautiful and very different from the external things of the world. There's something very powerful about it, something about giving up that world outside, which actually is very, very uh, creates an inner peace that is far, far superior. So this is what I mean by right view understanding where to look for happiness. Yeah, this is why I said during the meditation don't Look to the future, yeah, because actually you can try to resolve that future by thinking about it, trying to resolve it. No, the way to resolve the future is actually now, by being peaceful now, by gaining happiness here and now, by becoming a more pure person, purifying your heart, becoming more kind. Then you are creating a good future for yourself. We don't create a good future by resolving the problems of the world, we create a good future. By having good hearts that is where the good future is is made and there's something very wonderful about that yeah there's something very very powerful about that because if we try to create if we think that we're going to create a good future by the external world we're always going to despair we're always going to get depressed we're always going to feel sad because the outside world is out of control you watch the news on tv it's enough to make you depressed, right? I, I I don't know, I haven't watched TV for, I don't know how many years, uh, except when I go visit my mother, but I might watch a little bit of TV with her, but that's three years ago now, because I last watched TV or something. But this news, yeah, they are, there is no solution in that world. So just by watching those news, uh, eventually you get depressed because you take it too seriously. Yeah? that is not where we create the future. You create the future through the goodness of your heart. That goodness of the heart is made in things like meditational practice. When you become peaceful, when you become calm, when you understand that, you let go of the outer world and you focus on what you're doing now, here and now, in your meditation practice. This is what right view does for you. This is what I mean by right view. Sure, it includes rebirth, comma, all of that, but this is kind of practical right-view, yet yeah, and right here and now, which actually does something for your meditation practice. So this is um, one way, or this is how we build up uh, mindfulness, both in the long term and also in the short term. Right-view, and conduct and morality. These two things together is going to build it up. Uh, just trying to be mindful for mindfulness sake is not going to do too much to you at all. Uh, sometimes it might even be detrimental if you spend too much willpower doing it. Uh, so... Um, what next? <laughs> so the question then is also, what do we do when you come then to your cushion yeah, and you're going to you sit down and then you try to relax, you try to be at ease, you try as I said, you don't want to create the meditation, you just want to be here and you want to allow the meditation to evolve by itself. How do you do that? How can you just stand back? Yeah? We're so used to making things happen, we're so used to producing things, doing things, being creative. How can we just stand back and allow things to be? Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite suttas that I usually teach on every retreat, but not on this one, is called the Chetana Sutta, yeah, where the Buddha says meditation cannot be produced by an act of will. Na Chetanaya Karaniya, not to be done by an act of will. He literally says that in that sutta. And so how can we let go of that will if we can't produce it through willpower? And uh, we need some kind of skillful way of thinking or perceiving the world to be able to let the will be and just allow the process to happen. It's so easy for the will to sneak in and try to do the meditation. And I've heard monks say this to me, said, oh yeah, I thought I had let go of the whole will, but then I found actually I was still trying yeah and then i let go more and even more bliss came up and it's like this process of always letting go of the will so how can we do that and i will give you a couple of ideas of how to do this and a very simple way of thinking about this that i often teach people is the idea of what you do when you are really tired yeah? Say that you come back home from a long day at work, you have been working really, really hard, yeah? forcing your mind onto reading and writing and doing and going to meetings, I don't know what people do at work, yeah. or uh, <laughs> you're not gonna, uh, whatever that is. And then you come back home and you're exhausted yeah? from all of this activity. Yeah. And then when you are really exhausted, uh, what do you do? And what you do is you may sit down in your favorite chair, oh boy, so so exhausted, you cannot sit back. And what do you do when you sit back in that favorite chair? Do you force your mind to be peaceful? no you just you don't want to do anything more you're fed up with doing you just want to relax right you don't do anything you just allow the mind to be here you allow the mind to run and when the mind runs in a certain way in a kind of uh, it um, uh, kind of almost like it exhaust that energy, that restlessness that you have built up through the day, after a while the mind starts to become more peaceful, the energy starts to seep back. And after a while you feel better and then you get up and you do whatever duty you have to do next. But when you are really exhausted like that, you don't do anything, you just allow the world to be. Meditation is a little bit like that. Yeah, it's a bit like, like that kind of feeling, yeah? not doing anything, allowing things to be in the same way when you come back and you sit in your favourite chair, just relaxing, not doing anything. Yeah? That's one way of thinking about meditation practice. It's not exactly the same, because when you are in that chair your mind might be all over the place, Yeah, but it's the same kind of uh, idea of non-interference. Uh, that is kind of the point here. Yeah? That is a simple way of thinking about it. But one of the ways that the Buddha teaches in the suttas, that I would also recommend you to do if you feel like it, only if you feel like it, you don't feel it's too challenging, is to do a little bit of death contemplation. Because death has exactly that same thing about it, that just relaxing. Yeah, Because when you are imagine yourself on your deathbed, what are you going to do? Are you going to try very hard to do something? Probably not, right? You're probably not going to try really hard to, I don't know, to, to think about your next project or to do or to argue with someone or anything like that. Yeah, you're on your deathbed, for goodness sake. Yeah? All of that becomes irrelevant. So on your deathbed, very likely, you're just going to really relax. Yeah, There's nothing more to think about. Okay, this is it. This is the end. OK, I better just... <laughs> there's nothing more to be done, right? So you can imagine yourself on your deathbed, not doing anything at all because nothing to be done, but still being fully awake because you're just waiting to die. That is very similar to the idea of meditation. Meditation and dying are very similar to each other. <laughs> Isn't that nice? I think that's really nice, actually. It's a very beautiful idea. They're very similar because it's about letting go. When you're dying, you have to let go. In meditation, you're letting go. And this gives you, also changes your, if you have an idea of letting go already. It means that dying is a very, can be a very beautiful process. Yeah, it's a process of letting go, where you feel peaceful, where you feel at ease. Maybe you feel blissful and all of these kinds of things. There's a great parallel between dying and meditation practice. Letting go of the world, allowing everything to be, and just waiting, doing absolutely nothing. Try to use that idea of death in a meditation practice. There's nothing to be done. I'm out of here. Nothing in this world has any meaning for me anymore. No desires, no ill will. Everything is irrelevant. When everything is irrelevant, guaranteed, you're going to become peaceful. So death, maranasati, is called in the suttas, perception of death, mindfulness of death, is a very beautiful way of becoming peaceful. So these are a couple of ways in meditation just to become peaceful, not to do the meditation, but allow the meditation to happen. There's one more thing I wanted to talk about from the suttas and one of the, I think, very important ways of Thinking about meditation, which comes out of the suttas when you read the word of the Buddha very carefully, and that is to avoid too much pain and unpleasant feelings in the meditation practice. It is very common in the Buddhist world to be told, sit with pain, watch the pain. Yeah, very, very common thing to be told. And there is really nothing, in my opinion, in the suttas to support that idea. Of course, some pain is inevitable yeah, in the body. We're all going to have some degree of pain uh, because that's just the nature of the body. It's unavoidable that you have some. Uh, but we don't need to create extra pain just so we can watch the pain. Yeah, I'm going to make pain so I can watch the pain. Uh, that is not really necessary. And you will find that uh, if you, generally speaking, unless your mindfulness is incredibly powerful, pain is going to be problematic because the mind doesn't want to be here anymore you don't want to be in the present yeah? you lose that ability to enjoy what you're doing where does this idea of pain meditation come from? and it comes from basically the Satipatthana Sutta if you go to the Satipatthana Sutta we're going to look at it later on it says in there that you contemplate yeah, Anupassana is the Pali word, the feelings And the feelings include painful feelings and happy feelings and neutral feelings. They include the uh, samisa feelings. Samisa is like the carnal or the bodily feelings. And the niramisa feelings, which are the spiritual feelings. So because it includes the painful feelings, the contemplation of painful feelings in the body, then arises this idea that we should contemplate, we should stay where we should observe the painful feelings in the body that comes from that idea. But uh, the truth is that just because you find that in the Satipatthana Sutta, yeah, that needs to be interpreted, it needs to be understood in the right way. And what is very interesting, if you look at things like the Anapanasati Sutta, yeah, the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta, you look at that one, it is a complete parallel to the Satipatthana Sutta, yeah if satipatthana is completely fulfilled by doing mindfulness of breathing yeah so and if you look at the Satipata- Anapanasati sutta mindfulness of breathing you look at the part which is equivalent to the contemplation of feeling in the satipatthana sutta it has nothing about painful feelings at all it says you contemplate piti piti is Happiness. Yeah, it is joy, it is rapture, whatever. You contemplate sukha. Sukha even more happiness. Not just happiness, but more happiness as well. Happiness and more happiness. So, <laughs> this is getting good. Then you have the contemplate the Chitta Sankara. Yeah. Chitta Sankara is the in this case means like the uh, more feelings and perceptions of the mind this is how it is defined the chitta sankara the perception of feelings of the mind. So, in other words more of the same feelings and then you calm the chitta sankara you calm those beautiful feelings to get even more beautiful feelings so if you go to the anapanasati sutta all you see is happy feelings and yet that fulfills the feeling contemplation. It is equivalent to the contemplation of feelings in the Satipatthana Sutta. How can that be? Satipatthana Sutta says pain, Anapanasati says happiness. How is this possible? How can they both fulfill the same thing if they say different things? And the answer to that question is actually quite. Simple, the answer is that uh, you don't have to contemplate those painful feelings because contemplation can mean many different things. Contemplation can be done when something is present, but a far more powerful way of contemplating something is to contemplate by its absence. So you know painful feeling by its absence. When it's gone, you understand it much better than when it's there. Yeah, it is the same thing with everything in meditation practice. If you want to understand your body, it is when the body is gone that you can really understand it. Because then you understand, oh, that was a pile of dukkha, yeah, it's gone. Now I really understand what the body is about, precisely because it is gone. So everything in Buddhism is much better understood when it's gone than when it's present when it's present it's going to be disturbing it's going to be it's going to be you don't really have full perspective because you still are involved with it in a certain way but when it's completely gone you understand its impermanence because it's gone you understand its dukkha because you are much more happy without and you understand its non-self because you no longer have access to it so <laughs> so uh, that is the uh, That is how you can make these things gel with each other, right? How they can actually work out. First of all, you see that happy feelings is sufficient because you see that in the Anapanasati Sutta. And then you have to understand the idea of Anupassana or Anupassi that you find in the Satipatthana Sutta. doesn't mean always that you observe things directly. It also means that you observe by the absence. It means you observe indirectly, you understand things more Inferentially rather than through direct experience. Uh, And these things are, you may, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if you kind of uh, can really gel with this, but this is actually very, very important because uh, if you have been to a typical, uh, you know, retreats that are taught around the world, uh, yeah, often they are called vipassana retreats or whatever, uh, very often the idea that Anupassana that you find in the Satipatthana means to observe directly. is one of the kind of main ideas that is taught very often in Buddhism. Actually, you look at the suttas, it becomes quite clear that that is not really the case. Anupassana contemplation can mean to observe directly, but it can also mean to observe indirectly. It can mean to observe by understanding something later on, after you emerge from it, through its absence and all of these kind of things. So it's a much broader kind of contemplation than direct observation. And once you understand all of these things, then it starts to fall into place. So the Buddhist path, really, is sufficient to enjoy the bliss. Yeah, that's such a beautiful thing. It's sufficient to enjoy the bliss. Isn't that marvelous? And yet so many people, they spend so much time in meditation, Experiencing dukkha and suffering and painful feelings and all kind of things. And you often hear people, I'm never ever in my entire life going to go on another meditation retreat. Because I was so tense. I had so much pain, so much suffering. And it's terrible, isn't it? I think it's absolutely awful when that happens. The spiritual path should be something which adds something to our life. Should make our life better. Should make our lives worse. Yeah. Wow, so much dukkha because but at the end I will get sukha. If I just go through enough dukkha I will get to sukha. Actually the Buddha never says that. The Buddha doesn't say dukkha leads to sukha. If you think dukkha leads to sukha you should become a Jain because what the Jains do? Yeah, stand on one leg for 10 years and uh, you know or whatever. That is what the Jains do. Don't make that mistake. Don't become a Jain ascetic. Become a Buddhist. Find the middle way. The middle way is where the body is gone. No pain, no happiness, and go to the happiness of the mind instead. That is the Buddhist path. And it's such a beautiful path. One of the things that you will see as we go through the sutta is that every stage of the path leads to happiness. One degree of happiness higher than the previous one, one after the other, building up, building up until the very end. It is not pain leads to gain or pain leads to happiness. It's happiness leading to more happiness. This is really the Buddhist path. and That is why it is so beautiful. Don't lose out on that wonderful aspect of the Buddhist path where happiness leads to more happiness. Don't allow yourself to be fooled by the idea that if I experience pain then down the track happiness will come. If you have pain in your meditation and it gets too much, get up. Change your posture. Sit in a different way. Don't sit there. Don't feel that you have to compete with anyone. The only person you are dealing with is yourself. You want to make maximum progress on the path. Forget about everyone else. Do what you need to do to make maximum progress and enjoy the meditation throughout. For these next seven days or whatever it is that we have, seven, seven and a half days, eight days, whatever it is, Um, Enjoy. Try to enjoy what you're doing. Try to just be peaceful. uh. Try not to go too far in your meditation practice. Find that balance in what you're doing. Sit here for an hour or half an hour, whatever it is. uh. Then go outside, do some walking meditation. Don't try too hard to focus in your walking meditation. Just walk back and forth. uh. Enjoy the beautiful weather. If 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 it is beautiful. <laughs> if it if it is bad weather, enjoy the bad weather. Yeah, enjoy regardless. Whatever happens, enjoy it. And just walk back and forth. And just watch your mind. Get to know yourself. Get to know what your defilements really are. Sometimes we don't know each other. We don't know ourselves all that well sometimes. There's a lot of things inside of us that actually we need to observe. What's going on here? Why am I thinking like this? And when you start to understand yourself, you can resolve some of those issues. You can give yourself a bit of kindness and compassion. Give kindness and compassion to others. Yeah, That is often enough when you go on walking meditation. So do things that work. Don't do things. Don't be a pre-programmed meditation robot who follows instructions. Okay, now I have to do this, now I have to... No, don't. Ask yourself what you need in the present moment uh, and then enjoy. uh, Have a good time, uh, and then you're going to have a marvelous eight days uh, on this retreat as a consequence. So, uh, anyway, just a few rambling thoughts on meditation. So, uh, I wish you all a marvelous retreat. And we're going to, tomorrow morning, we're going to come start with the suttas. So please uh, have a good time and that's up to you. You don't have to have a good time if you don't want to. You can have a miserable time if you want to. It's really up to you but I would recommend you to have a good time anyway. So let's finish off the day by paying homage to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and then we'll see you again tomorrow morning here.